The last class of my old professor's life took place once a week in his house by a window in the study where he could watch a small hibiscus plant shed its pink leaves. The class met on Tuesdays. It began after breakfast. The subject was the meaning of life. It was taught from experience. No books were required, yet many topics were covered, including love, work, community, family, aging, forgiveness, and finally, death. The last lecture was brief, only a few words. A funeral was held in lieu of graduation. The last class of my old professor's life had only one student. I was the student. Don't cling to things, because everything is impermanent. And you've got to accept that as being part of the human condition. Everything is impermanent. And expect that there will be human suffering. That's part of the human condition, too. That was the voice of Maury Schwartz, the Maury of Tuesdays with Maury. I am Mitch Album, the author of that book, the host of this podcast, Tuesday People, which is inspired by the lessons that I learned alongside my old college professor as he was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease now 25 years ago. And they are sadly in some ways more pertinent now than they ever have been. Alongside is my friend and co-host and producer, Lisa Goich. Hi, Lisa. Nice to have you with us. Hello, Mitch and Tuesday people. Uh, Today, with all the news about coronavirus, the staggering numbers that have climbed up, and of course, the daily death toll that we see in our towns, in our states, in our country, and around the world, we thought it would be good to get some perspective and be reminded that sudden death and surprising death is not something that just began with coronavirus. It's not something that just started happening when people went to the hospital. It has been with us for as long as mankind has been on this planet. And before coronavirus, another story was quite dominant, and that was the sad and tragic helicopter crash that killed nine people, including, of course, Kobe Bryant and his daughter, Gianna, who was 13 years old. Frequently, when that story is referenced or was referenced, it was Kobe, his daughter, and the others on the plane. But the others on the plane had names and families and just as much sadness and tragedy as the Bryant family did. And to give us some thoughts on that and some perspective perhaps on dealing with grieving, which is something that sadly a lot of us are learning how to do and having to learn how to do day by day, is our guest who's on the line with us, Matt Mauser. Matt Mauser is the husband of Christina Mauser, who was on that helicopter when it crashed that tragic Sunday morning. She was an assistant basketball coach on the team that Kobe Bryant's daughter Gianna played on and by all accounts, a remarkable woman. And Matt is kind enough to spend a little time with us here on the Tuesday People podcast. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Mitch. Thanks for having me. Yes, it's a a strange time. Uh, And I wonder, before we get into the whole story of Christina and how you've been dealing with that, has this coronavirus uh, and the amount of sickness and isolation and death that we're seeing made your experience for you more difficult, more understandable? 
How has it in any way sort of shaded what you've already been having to go through with your grief? Mm, that's a good question. Um, it's definitely made it harder in a lot of ways. Um, we, we, we were feeling isolated, but now we feel doubly isolated in that everybody that was helping me, I have three small children, have uh, now disappeared. So in addition to grieving the loss of my wife, I'm having to take care of three kids. Uh, I have a nanny that has been helping, but that's really my only other, uh, you know, that's the only person helping me raise my kids. <laughs> yeah. Which is, uh, as you can imagine, very hard to do because they're grieving and I'm having a hard time just getting over the loss of my wife. Well, because the... Uh... One of the antidotes in the grieving process is some kind of return to normalcy. It has, as you say, the double whammy of the fact that your children, and if I understand, they're somewhere around 3, 9, and 11. Is that right? Yeah, four, just turned 4. Just uh, turned, uh, going to be 10 this month, and then uh, just turned 12 last week. Boys, girls, what, what are their names in... Uh, Ivy, sorry, my daughter Penny is 12, just turned on Saturday. Okay. My son Tom is uh, going to be 10 on the 28th. And my daughter Ivy just turned 4 on February 4th, okay. about so, 8 days after her mom's death. Yeah, they've all had birthdays since their mom passed away. And for them, you know, <laughs> as did you. Wow. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and for, for them, of course, the nice thing would be, well, maybe they can go back to school or maybe they can get some kind of semblance of normalcy. And here, as I say, you have this double whammy of, uh, oh, by the way, now we have to lock down in the house. You can't see your friends. You can't go to school. You can't play. Uh, that has to make it just, I don't even want to say doubly. I'm tempted to say triply or quadruply difficult. <laughs> yep. It's the perfect storm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Christina, your wife, all right? Uh, because I believe uh, one of the things that I learned alongside Maury was, you know, death is not just about grieving. Death is also about celebrating a life. And in Maury's case, when he was uh, given his death sentence with ALS, he insisted on spending his last uh, months and days talking about the good that he had experienced in life and the, and the wonderful things that uh, he had gotten a chance to experience and the memories that he was leaving behind. So let's talk a little bit about that with Christina. Tell us when you met, for example, and what attracted each of you to one another. Uh, well, um, I'm a singer, and I was in a, I'm in a band here in Orange County, California. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was a fan of my band, and uh, she would come out and see us on occasion. I always noticed her. And she was, she had a boyfriend at the time. And did, uh, did he come to the shows too, or did she leave him behind? I, I, I think he was a fan as well. Okay. Big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> as it turned out. Yeah. And so, uh, I think she'd come out one time and I asked her, I just was talking to her and I said, lose the boyfriend. <laughs> and she did. <laughs> well, when you're in a band, you can say those kind of things. I guess so. Yeah. And so she did. And uh, how long after that before you ended up getting married? Eight months. Wow. Yeah. So it was a quick yeah. courtship. She was beautiful. She was smart. She was uh, kind. And uh, she was a great listener. And uh, she was deep and extremely funny. Hmm. 
Yeah, she was a, she, they, uh, they call her the unicorn. And anybody that knew Christina felt connected with her. You never had to think about your relationship with Christina. You always knew where you stood and you always felt accepted. What was her basketball background? She played basketball in high school and she was one of the, we went to a pretty popular high school here in Huntington Beach, California. And she was one of the greatest players ever to go through her high school. Hmm. She was a CIF player of the year. She was an all-star every year. She was the athlete of the year for our high school, I believe, twice. She was just an absolute stud. And so uh, she she got recruited to play at a lot of schools, Hawaii, Pepperdine, uh, I can't remember, San Diego. And she just she had burned out by the time she was 18. So wow. she uh, she kind of put it on the back burner to go to work. And what type of work did she go into? She was a teacher. Mm-hmm. And uh, she got her she got her teaching credential. And when I met her, she was just graduating from college. And uh, I was a teacher as well. I was a Spanish teacher, and I brought her in and introduced her to uh, the athletic director at our school. And they loved her, and they gave her a job. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. So you're a teacher by day, singer at night type of thing? I'm one of the lucky few that was able to retire because the music got bigger than than the teaching. So uh-huh. um, I, I just do music full time now. I retired. She, we both retired from teaching about two years ago. Wow. Okay. And yet uh, she was quite young to do that, right? Only in her late 30s. Yeah, she, was 30, she retired at 35, 36. Wow. And mm-hmm. what were your what were your plans going forward then in, in both them being retirement? What were some long range oh. plans that you had? That's nice of you asked, Mitch. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, we had just put a purchase on a new house. You know, I I do um, two two different bands. I do a lot of uh, corporate gigs and weddings, and we're just we work a lot, so we were able to save quite a bit and. We've made an offer on a house in a nicer area, and we were going to do that. That, In fact, we had to pull the offer after she died. Huh. And so um, she was coaching with Kobe, and that was part-time, which was really nice because we could spend the days with our, our four-year-old and put, put the other two in school. And we had a lot of time during the day together. And we were looking at raising our kids in a bigger house, looking forward to you know, some trips that we wanted to take, redoing a house that we have out in Arizona and uh, just kind of enjoying watching our kids grow. Yeah. Her connection to Kobe Bryant was that uh, she, she ended up being the assistant basketball coach on his daughter's team, which uh, explained for people who don't understand uh, the way basketball can sometimes work, they just think, well, it's just with school, but there are also teams that are not in school. They're outside leagues and things like that. Uh, was, was 
that team, what was the name of it, and was that such a such a case? Yeah, well, it was a it was a club team, and uh, these club teams are like almost more intense than school teams. Mm. They're they're every day, especially with Kobe. It was every day, five days a week, two hours a day, and then on the weekends they had a lot of tournaments. Their team was called the Mamba, and they had two teams. The older kids, uh, Christina coached with Kobe, and then kind of a younger division, which my daughter was on. And uh, Christina was completely dedicated. She loved the girls, and she was a phenomenal coach. You know, she was maternal, and she was also really understood basketball and basketball schemes. What the, what the kids were, like 12, 13 years old that she coached, the girls? Yeah, 13, 14. Including Gianna uh, Bryant, Kobe's daughter. Correct. And they would play on weekends and, and after school and things like that? Yeah, tournaments, practice on the weekends, and then every night uh, during during the school year in summertime, sometimes twice a day. Wow. Now, uh, people don't know the geography of California, so Orange County is south of Los Angeles, and the helicopter, as I understand it, was heading up towards Los Angeles on that day. Was it common to use helicopters or means like that to get to the games where the games or the team located significantly far enough away from where you live that to, in order to deal with the California traffic and everything, that was a, a normal routine? Yeah, that's not everybody in California. <laughs> no, but, no, no, uh, no. I'm just talking about this as, particular as case. As, yeah. For, in this particular case, they did travel by air, uh, helicopter quite a bit, and then tournaments out of state, Arizona, Tech. I mean, uh, Las Vegas. They would they would travel private, and most of that was paid for, I assume, by Kobe Bryant. We weren't paying for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, how many times would you say Christina approximately had had been in in a helicopter, flying back and forth for? Or a private plane for for these purposes? Uh, I'd say 15, 20 times. And did you ever talk about potential accidents or the safety of it all? Yes. Who was more nervous about it, you or her? Uh, she was. She got. She didn't like flying. Was Which she ever breaks my heart. Yeah. Was she tempted to say something to Kobe? Or was it one of those things like, well, you know, we, it's kind of hard to complain about a private helicopter or a private plane or kind of hard to express your fear of it? Yeah. yeah let's not get I, I, I understand it's a good question, but I'd, pr- I'd prefer not to really of course discuss not. that. Sure. No problem. The Now, she would go always by herself, right? She didn't travel. You didn't go with her or the other, the kid, your kids didn't go with her in, on these trips? Uh, I, I've traveled in a helicopter before, but there was always, you know, other kids from other, and then other coaches or one other coach, but you know, a lot of times she would meet there or if, if, if they were traveling as a team to, to this particular location, they would travel with multiple people. My kids had never been in a helicopter though. Yeah. Did you know the pilot? I had met him before. I had flown with him once. Right. So on that day, uh, in January of this year which, gosh, it just seems like an eternity ago, doesn't it? And then January was just, you know, uh, less than three full months ago, and yet it feels like a world ago. And I'm sure for you, the meshing of the two worlds is almost 
incomprehensible. But yeah, on that on that day, um, were you particularly concerned? Was the, the weather? I know in Orange County, particularly when you get down near the coast, it's frequently foggy. Uh, you know, they call that a marine layer, and uh, and sometimes you go right through it, and there's nothing up in Los Angeles. Did either one of you take note of that that morning? Was there any particular concern about flying that day? I had had a show the night before, mm-hmm. and I was home late. And I had a show that night, the, the same day, the 26th. I was doing a performance at the Brea Improv, in which my daughter was supposed to be singing with me. Hmm. And uh, so I slept in a little bit because I was tired, having gotten home late. Right. And she kissed me on the cheek, said, I love you. I will see you this afternoon, and I'll have Penny ready uh, before the show. It's my daughter. Mm-hmm. And so I slept a little longer and I woke up and I noticed it was really foggy and I texted her and she was always really good at texting me back. She was, like I said, nervous about flying. And so she always was very diligent about keeping me updated and she didn't return. And then I got a call, but I did notice the fog and I thought about it. What was then, the time you know, between uh, when you texted her and the time you got the call? About 15, 20 minutes. And was your imagination running oh, away yeah. with you during that 15, 20 minutes? Yes, it was. Who was the call from and what did they say? It was a call from my bandmate. And he said, Kobe's dead. Is Christina okay? And you can imagine the rest. Hmm. Honestly, I can't. And uh, I don't think... Very many people who are listening to us can. It's not the kind of call that you expect to get. It's not the circumstances. Even the way you no, were told isn't, you know, the first thing is about Kobe Bryant, you know, because that's what makes the news and hear your friend. Because I was it. worried about it. I, yeah. I, I, I just kind of, maybe she forget. Maybe she's busy or this or that. She's not in service. And, and uh, it's one of those things where you, if you have imagination and you have people that you care about, you always ma- imagine the worst case scenario. And then you talk yourself out of it. Now they're all fine. I'm just overthinking this. And then, and then when it actually is the truth, you start doubting everything that you, all the self-talk that you give yourself. And because when you realize those things can come true, it kind of rocks your foundation. What did you do in the immediate aftermath of that phone call? I fell, screamed. I called my uh, uh, my dad, and then I gathered my two kids who were in the front, and I told them that mom's mom was dead, and they screamed. And we just sat there on the couch, just shocked. The hours and, and minutes that come right after that type of a a revelation are almost uh, impossible to relate to for people who haven't gone through it. Uh, for people who have, it's a little bit like if you know about the stages of uh, of uh, of death as they talk about them, you know, denial and anger and eventual acceptance and all the rest of it. The, the, the first stage is, is, is sort of disbelief and denial. 
it just doesn't seem real. And especially if you had just seen her, she kissed you goodbye a couple hours earlier, and now you're sitting in a house with with your children, and nobody's coming back. How how does how does the day transpire? You know, how do you what starts to kick in, especially for you as a father? And you have the children there, so you know you need to be strong for your kids because you can't just perhaps grieve exactly the way you want to or, or, or howl at the moon or scream or, or break something because you've got three sets of young eyes on you. How did that play into your immediate grieving process? Well, the interesting part was that people just start showing up at your house. Um we have a large circle of you know, friends and the fact that I'm kind of a, and then everybody knows kind of who I am through the bands and stuff. It was hard because I just, not only was I dealing with my own grief, taking care of my kids, but then I had people in my, in my space that I wasn't used to having. <sighs> and the fact that it was such a public story, it was all over the news and, Everybody knows, you know, what's going on. It didn't make it any easier. So it was, uh, I had news, news vans out front, cameras, you know, everybody was wanted an interview. It was just overwhelming. I think the hardest part for me was just, I, I thought about how am I going to do this? You know, how the hell am I going to raise these, these kids? And move forward without a, without their mother or without my amazing wife. And I still think that. Sure. <laughs> I don't imagine you found an answer to that quite yet. Except that no. the answer is for you what it is for everybody who goes through a shocking death day by day. There is no other answer to it. How, you, how do you go through it? You don't have a plan. You don't have a... Nothing falls out of the sky with a set of instructions. You, you no. just, you know can only go through the day and the next day and the day after that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting when the whole Corona thing hit, there's an element of distraction when everybody knows what, when this is the primary thing that's happening, not only in your life, but maybe on the news and other people are, are aware of it. And when that whole thing shifts and you are no longer front and center with everybody on their mind, you know, and it happened fast. Right. When the Corona thing hit, it happened really fast. Then to, to extreme attention on everything you do to complete isolation, it's it's quite the uh, shift in consciousness. Bad or good? It's all bad. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. no good. <laughs> you know, the isolation is almost harder because when everything slows down, as it naturally does, I was told this by other people who have been through similar situations. There will come a time when there's nobody here, and then that'll be hard in a different way, and it's it's been extremely hard. Yeah. What was uh, the spotlight part of it uh, like? How difficult did that make what might have already been an impossible situation? Uh, you mentioned news trucks and interviews and all that. When, if if at all, did that sort of reach a uh, uh, a particularly tough point and challenging point? I, it, 
from from my from where I was, it was it was kind of a distraction. So it, it made it feel like I didn't have to really sit and dwell on the fact of what happened. Um, the hard part is when I would hear it without my own ability to kind of control my own emotions. It was coming from an outside source telling me about my wife, you know, and telling me about, you know, they, they describe my wife and they'd say all these things. And there's felt like such a disconnect from the person that I was closest to. Hmm. I don't even know if I'm making sense. <laughs> no, of course, because when the media tries to sum up somebody in two sentences, it's never going to do justice the way right. that you know that person. And so that's uh, why I was proactive. I wanted, you know, these these uh, broad these TV shows would call, and and the the ones that I felt were going to get her story out, I I took the interview. Because I wanted people to know her like I knew her. I didn't want somebody that didn't know her talking about her. Yeah. And, Were there and, any- had, and I, I had to make sure that, you know, the hard part is that, and it's natural. Everybody is fascinated that, you know, a, a famous human being and is, was, a, was involved with this. But there were other amazing people, including my wife and, others that were that I wanted their story to be told as well. Did that ever uh, make you angry? The lopsided attention that uh, Kobe Bryant, uh, uh, famous personality, got relative to the other people who were on that plane? No, that didn't make me angry. I expected it. I was, uh, I, I, I was good friends with Kobe, and he was always good to us. So, he was, um, I mean, it was well-deserved. He was an amazing human being. Did you go through any uh, second-guessing of, you know, as people frequently do when people are lost in car crashes or lost in accidents? Oh, we shouldn't have gone out that day or should have known better. Yes. Or should, you know, did you yes. do a lot of that? I, 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 I rewrite history, kind of like a Tarantino movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I rewrite it almost on a daily basis. What would I have done differently? You know, had I been awake, had I seen the fog, I wish I would have, you know, maybe she needed to be home more with the kids, you know, but we were in that situation. We had, we had eliminated a part of our lives so that she could spend more time with the kids and be home more. And it was kind of the perfect situation. So, but as far as second guessing, yes, I second guess myself all the time. Does it bring you that's, any that's hard. comfort, or does it does it just make things worse? It makes it worse. Yeah. And there yeah. is a lesson there for those who are listening that, you know, it's called second-guessing for a reason, because only, you know, even the first guess doesn't count, and you can't change history by guessing, well, what if we could have done this or could have done that, and uh, it only leads to frustration. And at some point— my experience with dealing with so many people who have lost loved ones is at some point when you've stopped the second guessing, the peace can sort of begin. Of course, in in your case, Matt, uh, there were so many other extenuating circumstances that made this unusual, 
not the least of which is something that I think people who are going through coronavirus situations now can relate to, and that is you cannot be with the body of your loved one uh, immediately. You know, we have people who are dying in hospitals now alone. They're saying goodbye to their families via Skype or FaceTime because they can't physically be with them. And when they do pass away, they can't even be buried properly. And in its own way, because of the nature of a helicopter crash, I imagine that there was a a delay on that process as well. And, you know, walk us through that in terms of even being able to, to, you know, ultimately have a funeral and a burial for your wife. Well, we still have a barrier. She's, she was cremated and we, she's being held at the mortuary until we can kind of, uh, get through this whole thing. Mm-hmm. So we is can't be-, be together as a family. Is that because of the coronavirus, the, the delay on all this? Yeah. What was the process in terms of, you know, when you start getting information from, uh, I don't know, I guess the police or, or, uh, the you know, NTSB or whoever, uh, handles it about, you know, well, we need to do the accident site stuff and all that. How was that information flow to you and how frustrating was that? I, I delegated somebody else to get that information mm-hmm. and I was, I was pretty broken. So hearing all that stuff in addition to grieving would have just been too much. So I sheltered myself from having to hear all the details and I'll be really honest with you. I, I don't care if I ever know the details. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to relive that. You don't want to know what happened or what the conditions uh, were no. or any of that. doesn't matter. No. doesn't matter. The news is that's for change. other people to worry about. That's, that's somebody that's, that's like, I remember when my grandfather passed away, they asked me if I wanted to see him in the hospital dead. And I said, Nope. <laughs> Yeah. I want to remember him as he was. What have been the questions that your three children have asked as the days and weeks have passed? I got one yesterday. Is there really a heaven? What if there's not a heaven? What if she's just gone? And so that was one. Hmm. How did you answer that? I said, we'll never truly know until we're there. And I said, those are, those are questions that have pondered man since the beginning of time, and you're not going to answer it. So, you know, you just have to believe in what you believe and know that your mom, either present or in some other form, is, is, uh, would want you to be happy and live a full life. What did Christina believe about that? Was she particularly religious? Did she have a spiritual uh, guide or a sense of the afterlife? Had she lost anybody in her life that she had to sort of come to grips with? She did. She did have a um, sense of the afterlife. And uh, she lost her aunt, who she was really very close to when she was uh, 36. Her aunt was 36. I want to say Christina was uh, 16. Hmm maybe 15, 16. And that was something we had talked to, talked about a lot. And she always, I know she had to raise her aunts. She helped raise her aunts to uh, kids. Hmm. who are now in their early thirties. 
And uh, she had to become a mom early because of that, or like a mom figure. Mm -hmm. And Christina was very maternal. She was the only daughter in a family of like eight boys, uh, cousins and her brothers. And so she raised those kids. And she she had a sense of spirituality. Um, we would pray on a on, on when tough situations we would pray, and uh, I know she had more of a sense of that than I did, which gives me comfort. Mm-hmm. Where do you go for comfort now? Uh, I'm a musician, so I play music and I write songs. Mm-hmm. I'm lucky that uh, I have a, a team of musician friends that help me. And we play, we just re- did a, a podcast, not a podcast, but a FaceTime uh, broadcast last week and had a lot of people kind of giving us feedback. And um, it was very helpful. So music is and sort I, of... Uh... A, a a place where you go to to heal and to uh, to find comfort and relief. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, as a musician I wrote myself, a I can I can relate to that. Yeah. I just wrote a song um, and put it up. It's called Lost, hmm. and uh, it I can you know it's amazing how the words come when you're grieving. Did she have a favorite song that uh, that you you performed yeah. or that you would sing for her? Or? Oh, she used to make fun of everything I did. <laughs> she, we do uh, her favorite song that we do in my Sinatra band was uh, "My Kind of Town" hmm. by Chicago. Chicago, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she like call me irresponsible. Yeah, that was one of her favorites. Uh huh. And you haven't found that performing music is harder uh, with her gone because there's a certain joy in performing that that musicians often associate with their performances that may be difficult to find when you're playing. Uh, is it is it that case for you? I haven't done it yet. I did it on online 
and that was more of kind of a cathartic thing and then I was able to talk about her and sing songs with her on my mind but to get mm -hmm. up and just do a show or perform or act happy or joyful that might be a challenge yeah but I have to that's my job and and I know that's what she would want she was she managed the bands I mean she did all the contracts she did she contacted all the clients she'd deal with the you know with, with the travel details she was everything wow so she ran the band and she, and that's that's how we made our living and so um I know that if I gave up or I stopped, she'd be pretty upset. January 26th was the date this year that the helicopter crashed on that Sunday morning. Since then, so that's two and a half months from when we're actually uh, taping this right now, um, how has your grief, how has your acceptance of her death changed from the shock of that initial moment to where you are now what have been the stages of your grief oh. there was a moment where i kept thinking she was going to come back and i mm. guess that's the denial phase yeah and then i went through anger you know i'm still kind of in anger with myself with you know not being waking up earlier and seeing fog, like you said, talking about reliving situations. Um, and then there's this, there's this dull pain where I'm at now and it's consistent and it's always this, this feeling. It's like having a, an injury, like a physical injury, it's just nagging. And then sometimes it becomes so intense. You just break down or you start to cry, but, the ones that are hardest for me are the when I'm alone and my wife is very uh, soft and affectionate and I loved her voice and I don't get to hold her or those little tender moments that you share as a couple, right? which, which are so important. You know, she had a thing where she, at least once a day she needed to like be held. You know, because she was a very uh, sensitive person, but also incredibly strong. But when she was with me, she was vulnerable. In the world, when she's taking care of kids or coaching or how she presented herself to everybody with, you know, humor and all those things. When she was with me, she was, you know, different. And as, as was I. And so I don't have that tender, quiet moments with her where we're just the two of us. And right. I think that's the hardest. You don't have the place to go that was the two of you place, basically. Yeah. Where, what you created through your marriage. Yeah. Exactly. I think you're, you're so dead on there, Matt, and you're saying something that the people listening to us who have particularly have lost their spouses – uh, know exactly what you're talking about because there's there's you, there's your spouse, and then there's the thing that you and your spouse create between the two of you, which is the essence of the marriage. And in you know you can still be here, or the spouse, the other person can still be there, but that that thing is gone. And uh, to not be able to go into that space and experience it is is a pain all of all of its own, all of its own. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting because. 
I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, go ahead. But you make a, you make a good point. And I've, I've, there's no level of grief when someone dies in your life, whether it's a parent or a child. I've heard a lot of people that have lost children. Yeah. And that's horrific in its own right. I can't imagine. Well, I, I, I can't can imagine because I lost one. So oh. it's, a, it's a whole different, it's a whole different, uh, it's, it's, it too is inexplicable and, uh, and it has its own thing. Um, but, Continue on, please. You were going to make a point about that. Well, my, my point is that, that when you lose a spouse, it's it's as if you lost an arm or a whole side of your body. You know, just this is, you just feel like you're kind of drifting at times without, you, without getting too heavy. Yeah. You well, just, I mean, you just kind of feel lost, you know. It's hard lost not to get too heavy way. when you're talking about that subject. Do your do your children in those moments are your children your best balance? Are your children what when you're starting to drift away? Are they the thing that you can cling to and that pulls you sort of back, put your feet back on the ground and says, "Okay, we have to get through today and we have to get through tomorrow." Yeah. No, my kids are amazing. They're very sensitive, they're very aware of what's going on with me and they give me a lot of uh, encouragement. And they like to come up and give me hugs. And I just feel bad that I even get to that place sometimes during the day where I have to, you know, remove myself from being with them so I don't break down. Yeah. You know, but then, then there are moments of strength, you know, and, and where we enjoy the day or we have like a, a moment where we're learning a, a history lesson or talking about, you know, school or learning music. I haven't taken piano. So it's, it, you know, there's good and bad, but the, uh, inevitably throughout the day, you get a, a wave of grief. Well, what you've gone through and, and, uh, and what you're going through and even the lack of total closure on it at this point, because as you say, you still haven't buried her. And now it's an indefinite period of time before, you likely can uh, before we, none of us knows now when we can even gather for any kind of a function. Uh, all of life is so put on hold. Ha- has that made the, the inability to have at least that piece of it, that closure, has that made it that much more frustrating? Cause you, there are certain chapters you can't even just close the book on. Yeah. That's very hard. It's uh, I, 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 as far as being able to close the chapter with my wife, that's, that's not as hard as just getting back into a normal routine where you can kind of get a, a break from life, you know, or, or grief, you know, being, I'm a swimmer. Uh-huh. So I love to be able to go swim. You know, I swim at least four or five times a week. I can't even, I can't even go to the pool. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, my kids play water polo. I can't take them to practice. I can't take them to school. I can't give them some kind of structure. That's the hardest part. Yeah. Yeah. It's just unfair. It's, uh, I hear you tell that story and it's just, it's just wrong on so many levels. I mean, it's, uh, everything seems so unfair to all of us under these conditions. And then you talk to somebody like yourself and you realize there's even with, even within unfairness, there's multiple levels of unfairness and, uh, yeah. and yours is like, you know, the triple whammy of unfairness. And not you know, Mitch, I was, I was saying this, 
this because we because we worked so hard i mean we never took days off ever we worked hard to get our future in place Mm -hmm. and what i would give to be going through this with my gorgeous beautiful wife Mm. you know i just wish this would have happened six weeks earlier (laughs) right you'd have all been grounded right nobody could go anywhere and i mean it, 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 it what i would say to people that are going through this is love your spouse even if they drive you crazy whatever god it's such a blessing to have somebody that can that loves you yeah you're probably hearing or reading like all oh, these people are complaining about i'm stuck with my wife and oh. stuck with my husband uh you know i'm going to be inside for the next 3 months that has to hit you as kind of ironic i would give anything to be able to spend a day with my wife well, Matt, you've given us a good sense of what an amazing woman she was and, and continues to be, uh, because although she physically isn't here, her memory is, and the influence that she'll have on her kids, and even the influence that she's having on people who are listening to this right now, uh, who may walk away from this podcast having spent 45 minutes or so and, and saying, you know, I was really feeling sorry for myself or really feeling bad about my being locked in and not being able to, you know, go to my health club. And uh, boy, I just, I just I just listened to that conversation, and I'm going to go hug my wife and or my husband and my kids really hard. And um, for that, we thank you. You know, I know that's a difficult. This has just been a difficult conversation to have, but a very valuable one. And uh, I know I speak on behalf of our audience and on behalf of Lisa that uh, we're very grateful for you to spend this time, and and we just send our you know our absolute best thoughts for the healing process for, for you and, and your kids um, who are uh, I appreciate doing it, it together. You've been very kind uh, and hope we have have a chance like to, to talk with you a little later when this is would like this right now. Just one more thing, if that's sure. okay. Of course. I would like to say, even though this is a, a tough time for everybody, especially, you know, us in addition, I do believe, and I have to believe that there will be a better day for, for everybody, including us. And when that day comes, it'll make, it'll put all this in perspective and really will have taught us how important it is to appreciate when things are good. Yeah. I think you're right. You got a head start on that uh, by a couple of months, uh, but everybody is catching up and uh, really good words and a good way to end our conversation. Matt Mauser, thank you for spending time with us here on the Tuesday People Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mitch. We'll see everybody next Tuesday, and still, till then, please stay safe. This is Mitch Album wishing you a good week. What uh, is important to say to someone before you say goodbye? That uh, we have a loving relationship. That we... Uh, cared about each other. That what we did was meaningful to both of us. That we uh, it's a funny way to say it but we sort of heightened the quality of our life because we were in friendship or relationship of every kind 
and that we did what we felt was good for each of us and we tried to live up to what was important for to each of us and that we took responsibility and caring to and for each other. You're not by my side 